Welcome back, everyone, to the NACAFA 65 Years of Our Huddle Includes Everyone podcast series. This episode, we got a good one. We catch up with CFLer Nate Bahar. Nate played for the Red Blacks, the Edmonton Eskimos, and a lot of you local fans will remember Nate from his days with the Carlton Ravens, particularly his 2014 Hail Mary reception that uh, vaulted Carlton to their first Panda game win since 1994. More recently, Nate has come on to the, I don't want to say local spotlight, but more so the, the national spotlight when he penned the piece to pimp a movement that's literally gone viral. If you haven't read, had a chance to read it, take a read. But I won't let the cat out of the bag. We'll touch on that and other things coming up after the break. Hey, Nate, welcome on board, buddy. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, you know what? The thanks comes from us, buddy. I really appreciate you taking time in your schedule with everything going on on the planet right now and all the uncertainty. Uh, mm-hmm. I appreciate you uh, taking the time to chat with us. And after your uh, your piece uh, to Pimple Movement, I think you're a pretty busy guy these days or a little bit in demand. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's been fun, though. <laughs> no, cool. Well, it must be. And you know what? I, we're going to touch on that. And we're going to dive into that a little later. But um, I do have to tell you, and I kind of, uh, you know, I'll let the cat out of the bag in the sense that I'll let people know I, I chatted with you a little beforehand and, and told you how impressed I was with it. But uh, again, I can't stress enough where uh, I've already, uh, we want to put it up on the NACAFA website and, uh, and get as many looks as we can, because I think it's, uh, it's a great read on, on, on in two ways, actually. I mean, just as a, as a social awareness piece, it's phenomenal. It's well-written. It's well, uh, it's, it's eloquent in the writing. And then, uh, from a complete separate point of view, um, I also think it serves as, uh, as a, as a kind of, uh, a nice exemplary or almost a role model type thing for some young ball players to rise. Cause I'm not gonna lie to you, but if I, I knew going in it was you who wrote it, but if I didn't, I would have thought you were about 30 years older, and <laughs> 30, 30 more years of experience under the, uh, under the belt with that. So again, really well done. So Nate, before uh, we jump into that, why don't um, I just dive right in? And uh, I mean, a lot of the kids that'll be watching will know you uh, from Carlton and just, uh, and I'll give the uh, kind of precursor out here or also give the, the disclaimer. If it ever, I seem to get a little hostile with our guest today, uh, I admit, I'm uh, ex-GG and he broke my heart I was I was leaving the stadium I had my back almost turned figuring the game was over and then out of nowhere um, you know plucked the ball out of the air and the rest is history and the first uh, pan, the first true pandas because I don't consider game one to be the true one there that was played at uh, Ottawa Usefield but the first true one mm-hmm. the uh, on the big stage went to you guys. So congratulations on that. But just warning everybody, if at times I seem to get hostile, there's a reason for it. <laughs> Thank you for that. Yeah. I mean, you know, it was fun. It feels like ancient history now, to be honest, in some ways, but it is always nice to get to talk to a Gigi and, and remind them, <laughs> have them remind, have them remind me that it happened. So I don't think that I dreamt it. Cause it's, uh, it's pretty surreal then. it's still a little surreal now to think about. So I'm always, uh, I'm always down to chat about, chat about a little, a little Gigi blood. Oh, I'm, I'm sure you are, especially with uh, with ex GGs or GGs fans. Now, the thing is, I'll tell you, <laughs> probably it's one of those things that'll probably I don't want to say fade out of your memory, but it'll seem like it's ancient history. But as time goes on, buddy, I think it's going to grow and grow. And uh, and the beauty is, it's probably in about thirty years from now, people will be talking about it. How uh, the ball traveled ninety yards, and you had yeah. to <laughs> yeah. on the back of four defenders with one. Uh, 
do a somersault land on your palm <laughs> so you weren't down and then uh, scamper in the end zone. But anyways, Nate, why don't uh, – uh, really quickly, I mean, uh, chat briefly. You're, you're originally from London, Ontario. Do you want to take us back a little bit in the history of, uh, you know, growing up in London, uh, how you got involved in football, some of the other sports you might have been playing up to and, and including at the time you were playing football? Yeah, absolutely. So, I, uh, like, yeah, like you said, I started, started football when I was, I think, I want to say seven. I think it was – you were supposed to be seven. I was actually, like, a year too young when my birthday was late. So, I was, like, six years old um my first tackle football year running around like a crazy kid um yeah it was so lmfa we were really lucky in london i think it's a big reason why we we've we produced so many uh so many you know oua all-stars and all canadians and uh and cfl players because we have a really really great minor system um not unlike in kappa here um that starts young and kind of grows you up with a with a good host of community coaches which are important um started when I was young I kind of like bounced in between around like when I was like nine to 13 I would kind of like play one year then take a year off and play one year just because I wasn't I obviously loved football but we we didn't always have a lot of money to for everything involved with it um, I was also doing like karate and stuff at the time um, and then by the time I think I was about 12 12 I'd say I, I kind of realized like okay no this is what I want to do um, this is what I want to do every year for sure and had to had to put some other things on the side for it um and then I ran with it. I mean, my, my first couple of years in at, at Central, so my high school, London Central Secondary School, um, were rough. I was about I got to high school at about ninety eight pounds, maybe. I don't think I don't think I cracked a hundred pounds until like the second semester of grade nine. Um, so I didn't touch the field as a as a freshman for even a even a millisecond. Um, I was a scout team running back who just got beat up by all the all the seniors. Um, second, my junior or my sophomore year, sorry. Put on maybe 15 pounds, maybe 115 pounds, and uh, got to play quarterback and a little triple or a little wing T sort of variation offense and run the ball a little bit. But it was fun. And then as we as I grew and as, as football went and as I started training more and more, you know, put weight on and the recruiting and all that started. But London, London was great. I mean, I was lucky to have a great strength coach and stuff as well. And Steve Hendrickson at Powerhouse Training Systems there. Uh, we kind of came into the, the game together in a sense, if you will. He was a young guy starting out when I was in grade 10. And it got me, got me to Carlton, so can't complain. Nice, nice. Now, uh, just before we touch on some of the Carlton stuff and then the, you kind of get in your senior years, you mentioned you did just some karate. How long did you do that for? Did, did you do that uh, concurrent oh. football when you were 12, 13, or did that stop when you really kind of dedicated the ball? Yeah, I feel like I probably I, – I would have to fact check with the uh, – the keeper of my books of my books which is my mother uh i feel like i, I feel like i stopped that going into high school so i think i did it until grade eight okay. um well yeah one one nationals one once once or twice there qualified for worlds a couple of times for a continuous sparring so i when i could when i could uh you know whip some whip some behind on the with the uh in a, in a sparring match i don't know if i still got it but we'll see no, nice. Now, I know a lot of guys, you know, particularly on the defensive side of the ball. That's why I'm kind of interested. In it. I know mm-hmm. um, a lot of guys on the defensive side of the ball, they, they, they credit martial arts with uh, really being a, a, an added crutch when they're playing football. Did you find any of the, uh, I guess, twofold, the mentality, the discipline helped you out, but also mm-hmm. some of the, the technique or whatnot? Did you find that that translated onto a football field? Uh, it's tough with the technique because – as you know, a lot of times at that at that age, um, technique is second to just athleticism because some kids just you know run a little faster than other kids, so right, it's right. like hard. hard but uh, the I think mentality A is the biggest thing. Um, B would be uh, would be that I was 
way stronger than I thought I should have been. And I think even my coaches, I remember like in grade nine and 10, like fitness classes when we do little like workouts with the team was like a little hundred pound kid. I was like moving to 135 and just little stuff like that. Cause like, you know, they just, you, you start doing push-ups when you're young, you start doing like, we always did wall sits and stuff and air squats and all sort of things. And you just kind of build up like a, it's a great baseline of strength, I think was a, a great thing for me. Uh, but in terms of technique, I can definitely see how it translates. Like my, my first and second off season, um, after my seasons at Edmonton and the pros, one of my good friends was a, was a pro fighter. Um, he kind of led me through, we, we, we would do weekly sessions, uh, just boxing. He's a UFC fighter or sorry, I guess so uh, mixed martial artist, but I have a love for boxing. So we would do a lot of that stuff. And I, I definitely love the, you know, working with, working your hand speed, working your, working your foot speed. I don't know how directly it translates, but I'm a big fan of cross training in sports rather than just setting up cones for hours and hours on hours. So I loved it. I think it's something that I would happily do again. Once, once, uh, if I can find somebody I want to train with um, that would be willing to train me for that, that amount of time, but it's great. No, that's awesome. That's awesome. And I know, and I, I like the fact that you brought up the cross training because I know that mm-hmm. we're uh, increasingly getting into this specialization period and you have a cry for a lot of coaches and, and, and a lot of professional athletes such as yourself that uh, kind of tell tales of when they were growing up, the benefits of cross training I mean, multi-sport athletes were possible. Mm-hmm. Um, just to gain that coordination skill set and, and also do uh, to kind of uh, stave off burnout, I guess. hundred percent. Growing up, um, you know, it was just if there was if there was a, a, a tangible winner and a loser, I was in. Like, you know, right. hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah. I couldn't think of a sport I did not like when I was 12 or 13 or did not try as long as at the end of the day there was a tangible winner and loser, uh, you know, count me in. Exactly. Now you came out, now you said after the first few years, you put on some weight, you stopped being the, uh, the proverbial, uh, tackling dummy as a skill yep. team back, which again is tough. I mean, I gotta, I gotta be honest. I, I was a quarterback, so I was always blessed even as a scout team quarterback in first year university, uh, <laughs> I still got that nice, uh, prestigious red jersey, that coveted red jersey that meant yep. hand. Didn't mean that they didn't take a few liberties here or there, but it wasn't. Uh, I can only imagine what a scout team running back would go through. But like, oh, oh yeah, oh yeah, that. especially high school. I think the the size difference is is potentially greater. Um, mm-hmm. Going from like it, from grade nine to twelve versus first year university and fourth year university. Um, like you're you, you're really dealing with guys that have uh, you know pre-puberty versus post-puberty, and I mean it, <laughs> it'd just be a scary thing. So I, that is absolutely a fact. Cool, cool. Well, let's look back now. Uh, looking at your high school years, um, mm-hmm. you kind of you went, you played. Now you mentioned which high school did you play for again in London? London Central Secondary School. Okay, the purple, the purple and gold, Golden Ghosts. Oh yes, purple and gold, <laughs> Golden Ghosts. Man, I shall remember that. Purple and gold. <laughs> Golden Ghosts, nice. Well, shout out to the Golden Ghosts. Um, now, when you came out, when you were looking at it, when did you kind of, in high school, when did you kind of, I mean, you love the game. You mentioned that, you know, you kind of dedicated yourself to it really around grade nine, that type mm-hmm. of time frame. But when did you really think, okay, you know what? I, I, I really think, A, I have the opportunity, or A, I want to do it, and B, I have the opportunity to pursue this at the next level, um, and the next level being university to start mm-hmm. with. Um. The honest, honest answer to that, I, there's, there's a moment, but the honest answer is that I never didn't think I could. Um, I was nice. My mother and brother are, uh, I owe so much of my success to them because from the time I could understand the English language, they were telling me that I could do anything I, I wanted to. They were, my, they were my biggest fans and still are the best support system of all time. And it, they very literally, 
made me think that every single thing was was mine to just go take. Um, but I obviously there's there's tough times. Like I said, being 95 pounds of grade nine is tough. Um, I think even my grade 11 year, I um, my grade 11 year playing varsity, I played, but I really only had like four catches. You know, we had a couple like fifth year guys who were who were really good, a fifth year quarterback who trusted his guys and. They had been playing together obviously for three, four, or five years. Um, so I think I had three catches, grade eleven, like one touchdown. It was nothing special by any stretch of the imagination. And then that year, I just kind of, I think it was a perfect storm of puberty slash my work ethic kind of, kind of uh, exploding. I think also Muse by Kobe Bryant. That documentary came out, um, which I think coincided with the perfect time because that I would watch it once a week, um, and. I didn't do a crazy amount in terms of weight. I think I probably went up about 15, 20 pounds by the OBFL season that year, the holy relic that is the OBFL. Um, and I I kind of just showed up for the first game of that year. It was our first year of, of, of the Juju Mustangs, if you remember that. Um, yeah. And thinking like, okay, I've definitely put the work in. Like I was running routes every, very, very little every single day after school and all that, every weekend day, doing my footwork, doing my sprints and all that. And then first game was against Hussein Marine. It was like, I just kind of started running. And like practice is practice. I never really put any stake into it and then I just I think I returned the first kickoff for a touchdown then had two receiving touchdowns and I was just like oh so this is what happens when you work hard and then it was, <laughs> from, from there there was never a doubt in my mind that I was gonna I was gonna be a professional football player nice that's awesome that's mm-hmm. and you know what there's uh and I appreciate the honest answer and there's uh and like I said almost every pro I've talked to there's that there's that grain of confidence uh, mm-hmm. and they always say there's a there's a fine line between confidence and arrogance but you mm-hmm. have to have that confidence and i mean i think uh it's something that you'll find in almost every pro athlete you talk to especially guys that get to the to the, to the apex of their career so to speak mm-hmm. and i mean it, those things where football is big in canada but it's it's not hockey it's not king and i, I mean I think the route for a Canadian football player, even the challenges of getting in the CFL, people don't realize just how hard it is. I think, you know, and that sounds sacrilegious here, but I think it's it's probably an easier path for an American to get to the NFL than the Canadian to get to the CFL, um, simply because of the hurdle, hurdles you got to overcome. And then the fact that, I mean, yeah, it is the Canadian Football League. It is, and I'm doing the quotation things with my hands, mm-hmm. this game, but I mean, it's still run by Americans. And I know... I mean, it's a it's a dirty term to use, but I know that a lot of a lot of them look at Canadians as a necessary evil, and so mm-hmm. I mean, you're constantly fighting the, uh, you know, fighting the prejudices of that. You're fighting the uh, an uphill battle. So I mean, uh, like I said to everybody I've ever talked to, my hats off, and I I think it's a it's a very difficult path, and I think you have to even be maybe sharper than your American counterparts to make the CFL. So you have to have that confidence. Well, good on you now. Sorry, Sorry just to piggyback off that. And it's funny because I, I was just reading a quote literally yesterday from uh, Scott Milanovic, who's now the head coach of the Edmonton Eskimos, uh, won a great cup as a coach in Toronto and then spent the last, I think, four or five years in in Jacksonville as their quarterback's coach. Um, and he was saying, like, it was, I don't remember what the interview or who was running the interview, but he fully was just like, I don't think people understand that 80% of these of CFL players could be on an NFL team. It's very literally just who you know, getting there at the exact right moment and making that happen. And like I can speak from experience. Um, like I was in New York, I was in the mini camp with the uh, with the Giants, and all their rookies from the year before were there. So I was I remember going up against one of my first one on ones was against like Ekpre Olmu or something. Or I think that's the name. Um, he was a he was a five star DB from Oregon and roasting him on one. Um, and it's like the like the gap is really not that big. I remember going to the very the last day of minicamp and like their assistant GM sought me out myself and was like, I want you to know that I was banging the table and you were this close. We just needed we have to bring one more running back onto our roster. And like we we gave 
we literally gave bonuses to some UEFAs that play your position. Um, but you were very literally one roster spot away from being here with us at main camp. And like, then I didn't even start that year in the CFL by any stretch. And there's so many stories of that. The guys that were in camps or made plays in the NFL that don't even get to play for two, two or three years in the CFL. It's like the, the way people look down their nose at it is it's honestly comical to me. Cause it always just shows to me that they know nothing about football. I, uh, you're, you're dead on. Like, I mean, mm-hmm. yeah. In, in the CFL is ridiculous. When I hear people, uh, some of the comments or whatnot, just discrediting it to some degree, mm-hmm. um, get agitated. And B, I just I, I realize I'm talking with the uneducated. Mm-hmm. Um, forget, and I wish, and I wish it with a name because it's funny you bring up the Milenovich interview. I I just literally, and I don't know how I got on this. I think I was looking up some other stuff. I was on a on a uh, one of these coaches conferences type thing. Uh, you mm-hmm. know with the situation there's a lot of them on zoom anyways player came up and we were watching the player and it was kind of a really interesting thing because this guy had been um he'd been released twice from two cfl clubs like he'd been released from two cfl teams finally had hooked on with winnipeg that's the part i do remember Mm -hmm. played a year peg and now he's gone on to play five years with tampa Um, right um, so it shows but he went through the two years where he couldn't Mm -hmm. play fell club and you hear stories about that all the time and like you said it's um it, it's incredible the similarities i've heard it numerous times i've seen the talent level it never ceases to amaze me how many kids it, it's i i it's one of the, the the things i try to get across to young athletes is just is is i think because of the the, the media coverage the fanfare the hoopla mm-hmm. that's involved with uh, with ncaa sports ncaa football they don't really, a lot of Canadian athletes just don't realize the, the skill level and the talent level um, that U Sports offers and, and what it takes to be a U Sport athlete until they get there. And they almost look at it dismissively as if, okay, well, I'll, I'll go play for, uh, for Carleton or, or, you know, or York or, you, you know, Saskatchewan or St. Mary's or something like that. Yet, because in their mind, they wanted to be a D1 guy. They get this yeah. Thing. And the funny thing is, like, I've had kids talk to me, and I mean, I don't mean this in a derogatory sense, but they're like, oh, well, I want to go D1. And in my mind, I'm like, son, you're, you're going to have to work your evolutive butt off to, mm-hmm. to, to Carlton's roster. Forget D1. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, you, you got a ways to go. But I think it's just, again, the hype's not there. So, I mean, I love that you alluded to that. Um, and I want to touch on a little bit more on your your experience at the Giants camp, because you're, it's funny, we just spoke with Ron O'Mara, mm-hmm. and uh, he had a similar story where he was talking about where he went into the uh, the regional camp with the Giants, but we'll touch on that in a second. Now, you came out of high school. What were you kind of narrowing your choices down school-wise? Um, so if I had left after my fourth year, if I had left after my senior year, um, I was either going to Mac Guelph, Mac or Guelph probably, or Western. Um, then funny enough, I kind of decided like, ah, you know what? I think I'm just going to go back for another year, like get my grades up a little bit. I was living on my own at that time. So, okay. Um, so decisions were a little different to make. Um, and then, so I went back for fifth year and played another year or played the, that junior Mustangs and all that. And I was kind of just like, hey, you know what, screw it. I'm just going to go to Western. Um, like if nothing, if nothing, uh, if nothing materializes with the States, with the United States um, and D1 and all that, then like, I'll just go to Western. And then I had this, I booked some meeting, I think half asleep. And after, after a game at TD, uh, TD Waterhouse uh, with Central, Coach Samara comes down and didn't recognize the guy. Couldn't understand what the logo was on his hat. And finally, I was like, oh, I, think that, I think that's like a burr. I was like, oh, maybe this is like those that Carlton. Like I hadn't talked to them at all in person. Um, he reminded me that I had an interview, that I had a meeting with him that night. And 
by like 11 p.m. that night, him walking on my house after we had just like drawn plays on napkins and just like literally talked for three or four hours. It was kind of, it took me like two weeks to finally wrap my head around it because I was like kind of terrified to to spurn Western and like all of my friends and stuff. And I was hanging out with Will Finch and Malcolm and a bunch of guys that were all, they were all freshmen there. That was, that was kind of my crew. Um, and knowing that I was going to have to spurn them was like, oh goodness. So, but then after a week or two, I, I knew and I just accepted myself. Like I wanted the challenge and that's what happened. No, very cool. Well, again, I'm going to ask you about that and I'll just kind of delve into something and let me know how comfortable you are. You mentioned that, uh, that you were living on your own for your senior year of high school. Uh, mm-hmm. How was that? How did you manage to, to juggle that, uh, the school, the, uh, the football, and, and, and again, living on your own at such a young age? Uh, yes, yeah, so I, was, I was out on my own for um, yeah, my grade 12 year and then my, my victory lap as well. So, and a little bit of grade 11. But, so at first I lived with, uh, lived with some friends, um, like with a friend's family. And then my grade 12 year was uh, – I mean, the main reason I had to go back was because I didn't do a great job of managing all of it, and especially this, the school aspect. It found it somehow found managed to take a back seat. Um, but I mean, it, it was what it was. By my fifth year, um, me and my mom had a great relationship um, again, and I was back in one of her rental units, so it wasn't nearly as stressful. Um, and I had a lot of I had a lot of people around me. She, she was helping me out with things, and you know, I had coaches that were helping me out with stuff in terms of food and, and, and all that. So I was extremely, extremely fortunate. That people, that so many people were in my corner. Um, whether it's because of football or what or whatever it was, I'm just I'm lucky that they were there because it would have been a could have been a lot different tale um, that turned a, a lot different. But I was able to stay focused, and you know my brother was always on me and stuff like that as well. So I'm I'm, I'm lucky in that sense. No, and it's a good. Uh, I like what you were, you kind of mentioned there because it's it's a great lesson for some of our younger guys. Is that I mean life is going to be about peaks and valleys. It's not going to be one. A consistent ascent or whatnot. I always used to use the expression. Used to always say that the greatest day of your life is not going to be the last day of your life. Meaning mm-hmm. that uh, life isn't just upward path. And so, just I mean, without getting into it too personal or anything, you mentioned that I, I get the impression that it was kind of up and down your relationship, and you you kind of rebuilt that relationship with your mother. And, uh, mm-hmm. and the, it's a great lesson for some of our our younger guys listening. That I mean. Anything and everything can be temporary. You have to work on changing that. But I mean, everything and anything is temporary. And I mean, uh, you know, again, it's it's about peaks and valleys. So, you know, I appreciate. And you gotta be, and you gotta be, uh, as well as everything. Everything is temporary around you. You have to be willing to um, to be self-critical as well. If I stayed in the same mindset I was when I was sixteen when I left my house, I mean, there's there's no parent on earth that would have wanted to to mend that relationship with me. So if you if you're not willing to be self-critical as well, then the world changing around you isn't gonna isn't gonna do anything because a lot of the times the problems the problems can start with from within. If you uh, if you put a rotten apple into an apple pie, that apple pie is never gonna never gonna taste very good. So you gotta fi- you gotta fix yourself and 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 be critical um, while still supporting yourself and understanding that that like you said, there there are peaks and valleys. And it's about growing and just continuing to grow in every single way because if all you want to do is be a great football player, then you're gonna be there's a good chance you're going to miss out on a lot, a lot, a lot of life. And I actually, if I can quickly with another quick little story, I remember when I was young re- watching the the Muse documentary by, Car- by Kobe Bryant and it stuck with me. It was like he, there was a point where he said like, I'm going to sacrifice being a good father. I'm going to sacrifice being a good daughter, son, a, a good husband, a good brother, a good everything. Um, because all I want to do is be the best football player in, in, or sorry, the best basketball player I possibly can be in the life that I have to live. I remember like that at first resonating a lot with me in a like in a positive way. I was like, yeah, that's exactly what I want. And then it took me, it took me losing losing relationships with family and stuff like that to realize that 
first of all, I can't be the best football player I can be when I'm distracted with all this misery in my life. And second of all, it's just can't be the best way to live. If there's only, you know, if you're lucky and get a hundred years out here, um, there's so much more to do and so much more to give than just what you can do on uh, on 120 yards of, of turf. So that's one of those things that stuck with me. And I, I'm lucky I learned early because things could have gone a whole lot different. No, buddy, I really appreciate you kind of uh, touching on that a little because I think that's an incredible life lesson. And I, and I mean, and, and I'm not going to lie, not just for, for younger guys listening, for all of us at any age, uh, you know, in your 30s, 40s, 50s. Hell, even your 60s. I mean, I love the fit where you where you bring up. You have to be self-critical at the same time supporting yourself. The two aren't mutually exclusive. I absolutely mm-hmm. love that, that you kind of delve into that a little bit because I mean that's some uh, that's some interesting stuff. And I'm not going to lie to people when I before you and I had, we chatted a bit, but we didn't go into that. So mm-hmm. I, I I really appreciate you uh, you talking about that. And I think it can't stress enough. Like I said, uh, I know I sound like a well, you know, or a dead horse here or a broken record, but I think that's an incredible, <laughs> it's a, and I think you, you understand what I mean too. It's an, of incredible value. Um, and one of the things that brings with somebody with your athletic success and your football success, um, even if one, one young player or two young players kind of listens to it, because it's like you said, I, I see this in basketball, I've seen it in football. I've seen kids transfer from four or five schools. Hell, I, I, I've seen a, I, I remember watching and just thinking, you know, that's great, and we'll see what happens with the football career, but it's all going to be worth it that he's gone to four different high schools in four years, um, mm-hmm. and he's done this and his relationships. I mean, I look back at some of the my formative years, and, and I always say, is there more that I could have done? Of course there is. I tell players, you know, you don't want to leave anything on the table, but do I have incredibly fond memories outside of the football field? I, I really do, and I mean, I would very hesitant to change those or trade those. So, I mean, again, I appreciate you going into that. Now, kind of fast forward, things are a little more uh, stable on your end. You kind of looked at it. You've obviously, uh, just from what you're telling me with the, in, in the brief five about it, um, you know, you went from age 16 to 19, but it sounds more like you went from like, you know, uh, age 14 to age 35 in terms of maturity, <laughs> understanding the way things work. So again, man, that's good. I know you probably get asked this all the time because because mm-hmm. what Carlton was, but that's a, a heck of a leap of faith, especially when you're looking at like you sport, you know, legend programs. I mean, Mac has been a beast mm-hmm. in the late nineties. Western has been a beast since before you or I were even breathing air on this planet. Um, Guelph has had a dominant program now for over a decade. And you chose to go with the Carlton Ravens, a team that uh, were perennial, you know, uh, for lack of a better term, I got to choose it carefully so they don't think I'm ganging up them, but they were throughout most of the time. <laughs> since the Mark Brown era back in the mid-80s, they were perennial losers. They, they were the bottom mm-hmm. back of their conference. They were rebuilding. Clearly, they had a strong vision in terms of what they were doing. But again, you know, it's a completely brand new program. What was your frame of mind going in that? And how nervous were you once you've made the decision? Did you ever, and I'm not talking what you were playing, but did you ever during that summer or going into before you got into camp ever have second, uh, second guess it or have doubts about the decision you were making? Um, not really, to be honest. I was so certain. There's a lot of stuff that, uh, there's a lot of things that played into it um, on like a personal and social level. I, and this is not to rag on any of my friends that I have uh, that, that went to Western or that, that go to Western or anything like that, but getting into the Western machine um, changes who you are a little bit. 
and I, I saw that. I think you can grow out of it for sure, but I didn't want to really be swallowed up by the whole the Western facade of self-importance, to put it bluntly, to be honest. Um, I, had, I had friends, I was friends with for, for all of high school, and then they, I'm doing my fifth year, and they're at Western and play varsity sports, and all of a sudden they're, they start walking with their chin a couple angles higher and chest a little more full of air. And it was just stuff that when you grow up in London, I didn't really want to be a part of. That was, that was a main thing for sure. And then there was more football reasons as well uh, that, that pushed me away from it. So then going to Carlton, I was, I was certain. I mean, I wanted to start something new. I wanted to be a part of it. it was the, the chances that I was ever going to be a part of starting a new football program at, in any capacity in the rest of my life was, was pretty much z- zero to none. Um, and I relished the opportunity because it was like I was, again, like, I, like I've said, I was confident that no matter where I was going to go, I was going to play and contribute, and, you know, and, and get to put up my numbers. So that wasn't weighing into the weighing into the facts for me uh, i chatted with jesse uh with mills uh, a lot before the decision and i trusted him i obviously trust coach samara and me and coach jp um have one of the best relationships i've ever had with a coach and him and i could just talk shop all day and that's what i wanted to be a part of that i wanted to get that ability to sort of be more than just a player i wanted to lead early and i didn't want to just get yelled at by some vets and made the drink i don't know whatever the heck they make rookies drink at these schools or you know all the all this all the goofy stuff that goes along with it just for the simple fact that like i had a certain birth year like i knew that i was mature i knew i was ready to go with it and i definitely made mistakes on the way but i wanted to be a part of building something and being leadership early and setting culture and that's that's what i got to do there Oh, and you guys clearly did it. And I mean, I like that you touch on uh, Coach Asley. I mean, J.P. Asley, mm-hmm. I've known him for years since he was a player at Ottawa U, and I have the utmost respect. And the funny thing you bring it up is one of my favorite things uh, always with J.P. is that uh, I've always said it's one of my favorite guys just to talk shop with. I haven't in, in a few years. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I used to get together with J.P. and just uh, when he was over at the uh, the other side of the canal, the good side of the canal. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I used to just, we'd meet and, you know, we had the opportunity to just, again, just talk X to the nose. Great guy for doing that. Um, so we kind of, mm-hmm. uh, we'll fast forward it now. Um, well, one last question in terms of your Carlton career, excluding the Hail Mary pass, what was kind of, or if you, mm-hmm. if you have more than one, you could bring them up, but what was your major highlight with your time at Carlton? That was first off story, just to, so I'm not remiss on this. What did you study at Carlton? Communications. Communications. Perfect. And what was your highlight? Uh, you know what? I'll say both on and off the field. Keep in mind, this is PG, so the off the field. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> filter, filter that. Um, yeah. I have I have two on the field. Um, first one is just is was being beating Western fourth year in the regular season there. It was an incredible game. Uh, we played we played great. I was so proud. It was just the contribution from everybody on offense was just unbelievable. Uh, Tunde starting it off with that punt return was special, and then defense holding it down at the end. It was just like it was incredible because I had all from a very personal level, like my the entire I committed in November from November until July when I left for for Ottawa. Like every single time I went to the bar, every single time I went out was just people telling me very literally to my face, like they would just say it, just like you know you're never going to be Western, right? There's no there's no chance you'll ever win. So that was a very great feeling of like okay, we built something that can last. Um, obviously we, I wish that that playoff game went differently. And then my, my other favorite, my one, this is actually my one, a, I think questions one B is our first playoff game at Queens, uh, start of the fourth quarter. We get into the, we get into the huddle where I think we were up 10 or something like that. We we're up two scores, but it was still like, okay, there's, there's still life. We're stuck on our own end, second and long. Um, I was in the slot. I was the third, third most inside receiver, the most inside receiver to the field. And Quinton Soros had just checked in beside me. Um, and we were just running a little, running a little four verticals. Um, he's pretty green. Green in the face. He was, he was pretty new. It was obviously his first playoff game too, but it, in a lot of ways, his first real meaningful action. 
And I remember Jesse getting the call. We were sitting waiting for the for the broadcast timeout to be done. And I looked at him. I was like, Quinton, I promise you, this safety's coming with me. Run as fast as you can and catch this ball. And Jesse's like, Oh yeah, we're we're doing it. And I was like, Well, let's meet. I was like, Let's meet at the goalpost, man, and let's celebrate our first playoff win as a team. And then we break the huddle. Sure enough, safety drives down on me on the on the over route. Quinton's over the top. Eighty yards later, seventeen point game or twenty one point game, something like that. And we all knew we just did it. We're finally on the map. Let's party. Nice, nice. And it's, I love the names you're bringing up because there's another one I had the opportunity to coach years, years ago when he was young and just starting out. Um, so that's a great story about Quentin. Now, so we're, we're, we're leaving Carlton now. You're heading to the CFL mm-hmm. draft. Obviously, you've put your name on, on the map type of thing. Um, you had the chance. You were looking at NFL. How did that come about that you ended up at the Giants minicamp? How did that uh, the whole session with that um yeah my agent Jonathan Hardaway uh he took took care of all that I think there was we're there's a point where we were talking with a few teams that because the problem with minicamps is that they all coincide so when you're when you're at UDFA um and if no one's gonna offer you upfront money then you kind of have to make some choices I think there was two or three teams whose camps we were looking at um we looked at the composition of rosters and just sort of the even just the, the language behind the conversations we were having with the with the GMs in terms of like interest level and at that point um, and this is why so many Canadians went to the, that Giants camp, that there was a, uh, a Canadian in the front office who wanted to give that that space to Canadians, which was awesome. But um, we felt like he was taking particular care to, to talk to John about about me and that it was more than just sort of a, hey, let's fill this camp up with some guys and maybe, maybe find something. It, it felt a little more concrete than that versus um, I think Oakland was one at the time, and I want to say Cleveland as well that we were chatting with, but they're all the same weekend. So we had to make a decision the closer we got to it. Um, we said, screw it, let's do New York. I don't care if it's going to look like a, uh, it's going to look like we're part of the Canadian pity party. Like, I think there's an actual opportunity here. Um, so we went and it was a great experience. I mean, like I said before, I alluded to, like, it was, it was very literally a, uh, a hair away. It felt like, and I've thought about that a lot since and not that, you know, training camp would have training camp could have won a million different ways. I mean, it's, it's still a training camp. They make uh, a lot, a lot of cuts at, but obviously the experience of getting to stay there for OTAs and train in their incredible facilities and, and all that would have been, would have been something to remember for a lifetime. No, I hear you. I hear you. Now, what was your, um, what was your mindset? Did you find And again, like I said, you've always had that confidence in yourself, but now mm-hmm. you're kind of, you're going from, from the Carlton Ravens to the New York giants. Again, I asked you this, I kind of know what the answer is going to be already, mm-hmm. but was there any self doubt or anything, or were you just full steam ahead? Say, Hey, you know what? This is a chance. I'm going to grab it. Yeah, I mean, definitely some self-doubt, more than anything, because, like, I haven't played, I've never played a game on their size field. Um, I've been given a yard all the time off the line. Um, I've been working on my press releases and stuff, but it's it's so different when it's like, okay, I put in two months of work with, with, no, with no yard, and these guys have played all 22 years of their life with pressing nose to chest. Um, so there was definitely, like, gameplay stuff that, that made me nervous, but then we had meetings, obviously, the first night when we got there. And I was the only receiver in the room that understood the playbook and me and the coach were talking like one-on-one in meetings while everybody else kind of sat there with their slack jaw, like drooling off the side of their face. Like what the heck is all these numbers and words? And it was really simple to me, their playbooks. And I still think it was, I'm pretty sure that's why they sucked to be honest. Their playbook was like the most rudimentary thing I've ever seen. Um, But those kind of first meetings and me being like, Oh wow. Okay. Well, at the very least I'm going to be smarter than every single player on this football field made me, uh, made me feel a lot better about it. So that first day I really got to shine. No, nice. And it's funny because people don't realize the difference some of those little nuances make. I remember uh, 
I remember my freshman year at university as down in the States and uh, I remember getting there and the biggest adjustment as a quarterback, I remember the first time going in and running a goal line type offense and you're looking mm-hmm. at the size of the end zone and just realizing how much real estate or how little real estate I had to deal with. And they're calling it a pass play. And I'm like, and I'm going to throw this ball where? <laughs> <laughs> Who am I throwing to and where? How are they going to be open in this area? So, I mean, there's little nuances. It's, it's, it's kind of cool. Like I said, that you touch on a couple of them. And I mean that you were able to make the adjustment. Now, going in, obviously, with your experience with the Giants, your successful career with Carlton, um, it was never a question of if. It was a question of when you were going to be drafted in the CFL. Describe a little bit the uh, the, the process in the CFL and, and draft day. I mean, obviously, it's not, again, we talk about the hoopla and the hype. It's not the ESPN or the ABC spectacle it is in the States. But, I mean, for mm-hmm. guys getting drafted, it's still got to be a significant life moment. Can you kind of take us through it? Um, yeah, it was a blast. Uh, combine, combine's great too. Um, all that, all the lead up to it is, is, is great fun. We, uh, you know, go for it, go to it and all the interviews are good and, and, and interesting, but then, you know, the, after the combine, that sort of a couple, the couple weeks in between are just like, you know, your agent's calling you, Hey, I'm hearing this, this and the third, or, you know, and my agent is, is, is great. He tries to sort of work out some, some numbers and stuff about teams based on where they're going to draft you and all these sort of things. So I was in a very forceful position that I had a pretty decent idea. Um, I had a pretty decent idea what it was going to shake out as I kind of knew what my floor was as well in terms of where I wouldn't go past. Excuse me here. Oh, very sorry for that. Um, I had a bit of I had a bit of a floor for where where I knew I was going to go. I knew I wasn't going to slip past ten with Montreal and stuff like that. So my anxieties were were low. Um, and we all went over to hometown sports. There was a, a big crew of us. It was my my brother and his, my brother and his wife got to come up and. Uh, and, and my girlfriend at the time and her family and, and a bunch of guys from Carlton were all there. So we had a, we had a big table at hometown. They put the sound on and all that. And then my phone was in the middle of the table. And when my phone, my phone rang after, I think whoever the fourth pick was, or, or it might've been Hamilton at three, my phone rang and we all kind of, everyone went quiet. And then it was like, once I gave a thumbs up, it was like, okay, let's party. So it was, it was a fun experience. I mean, like you said, it's without, it's not the uh, Madison Square Garden hoopla or, or wherever they used to run it, sorry, Radio City. Um, but it's it's great in its own way, um, just like the CFL is, and it was, it was a blast. No, and I mean, again, it's, it's a life-changing experience. I mean, we just, mm-hmm. we tend to do things sport-wise a little different in, this, different in this country, but it doesn't take the significance off of it at all, at all. Mm-hmm. Congratulations on that. Now, again, you're an Eastern Canadian guy, you know, born and raised in London, Ontario, played your college career in Ottawa, and now you're heading out west, um, mm-hmm. fifth overall. And now, touch base a little bit on it before we talk, but I mean, from what I understand, contract negotiations did not go great at the beginning. Uh, <laughs> and just by the chuckle, I think I'm using a bit of a euphemism when I say did not go great. Um, uh, you want to touch on that a little bit? Do you want to, like, I mean, what was the process like as a Canadian? And the, you were, correct me if I'm wrong, you were the fifth overall pick, were you not? Correct, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, again, it's one of those things where it, it shows kind of the difference, the mentality, you know, in the, the NFL draft, the NHL draft, the. Uh, the, the NBA draft, you're fifth overall, and, and you have a lot of leverage in there, but it seems almost Edmonton, uh, there was a low ball process going on. Again, it's 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 like, whereas I see the treatment of Canadians. Yeah, so I mean, it's uh, it's all about trying to win and save that penny, um, especially in the CFL, I think. Um, so it's tough. I mean, without getting into the minute details of numbers and figures and all that, I think the issue is just simply put that sometimes egos get in the way as well. Like it was, it's a new new GM. Um, 
and my my agent's been known to be a, a tough guy to negotiate with and obviously that's why i personally love him yeah uh, but that's why some people on the other side of the table don't love him um so yeah things happen i mean there was some outlandish stuff being said there was some some figures getting thrown out to the media to try to sully my name a little bit which is the part that which is the part that hurt me was that like twitter and stuff's coming out saying that i'm asking for fifty thousand dollars in signing bonuses and just like all this crazy stuff that i'm like what is this possibly doing? And then it worked on the fans, like the fans and even the vets on my, like on my team that I didn't, that I hadn't met yet. Like I had guys on the team that were texting me being like, dude, like they're going crazy. Like they're, all they're doing is chirping you like blah, blah, blah. Cause they're seeing the stuff from, on Twitter that I'm not allowed to respond to. Like I was supposed to be you know, dead silent about the whole thing. Cause it's not my job to be in it. And like, so I had people tweeting at me like, Oh, oh this ungrateful, this ungrateful, uh, blah, blah, blah. And Oh, we hope you blow your knee out the first time you step on the field. And Oh, you da, 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 da. All the while, it's just like, this isn't what's going on at all. It's just like, simply put, you know, everyone can cherry pick numbers and say, well, you know, somebody at your draft position X amount of time ago took this much money, so I'm going to give you that. And then we can obviously say, okay, but there's all these other people that took this. Like, why would I, why would we go to the basement floor of this, of this, uh, of this, and, you know, so it's just, it's frustrating. Um, it was extremely frustrating from where I stood. I couldn't, I was not doing a great job of handling the, uh, the external noise. Um, it's something that I've worked on a lot since. It was stressful for sure. Like just having people that I never met in my in my uh, mentions and DMs and stuff, wishing just the absolute worst on me as a human being, would for literally nothing. Like for the same contract negotiations that anybody would take in any job, um, it was just it was a lot to handle. But we got through it and we got got to football eventually. Awesome, and I mean it's one of the it's it's the sad thing, and a lot of people, and that's I like that you said about the, any other job because I mean it mm-hmm. just there's a business aspect to it and, and the kind of general public mentality is, Oh my God, Nate, you should be grateful. You get to play a game for a living and they Mm -hmm. focus on the game part and not the for a living part. And they, and they forget also that all these teams, they have, you know, budgetary goals. They have uh, financial goals involved. It's not quite as simple as, Hey, we're going to do this. If we win the Grey Cup, if we win the Super Bowl, if we win the Stanley Cup, we're a success. End of story. It's not that simple. Yet I, mm-hmm. I think there's a, a nostalgia almost with sport that wants to remove. And I mean, nostalgia is not even the word because I mean, I, I, you know, it's, it's never really existed in this format. But wants to remove it. So I mean, for you, I, I can only, uh, I can only sympathize. Can't even empathize what you must be going through for that being your first. Like it's one thing to go through a dispute or, or something like that when you're in your fourth or fifth year and you kind of know the business aspect involved mm-hmm. but it's a complete other beast to be coming out as a, as a, as a rookie and I, I i'm a little bit older so i mean and again uh, so I, I i know life very 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 well and, and the majority of my life i would say pre-social media and it's one of the right. frustrating things with social media that i find right now is that it's almost is is it's become the replacement of reality. And by that, I mean, so many people look to that as reality and it couldn't be further from the truth. And I mean, mm-hmm. when it first came out, it's inaugural functions or whatnot. It was viewed as, is 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 a separate, like not even a separate reality, but a separate entity that was not reality. Whereas I've just seen this mass shift in the last, I would say half decade or so, where it has truly become a replacement of reality. 
And, and yes, and and the problem being is exactly in the my choice of words. There is that replacement and reality. It's not like become the new reality. It's not mm-hmm. not a reality. It's just the replacement of reality. So I mean, again, buddy, I'm sorry you had to go through that. Um, I, I'm I don't want to sound like I'm 900 years old here in the <laughs> not in the social media. I, I I use it. I like what it can do. I like its benefits. But I think it's the ultimate Pandora's box, and and it's been opened up, and and a lot of where I see things trending on all platforms right now, is is a terrible thing. Like I, I truly think it's yeah. a terrible thing, and so and, it uh, it definitely reduces people's humanity. Like if you're coming at somebody, it's you're unable to see um, two sides of a coin. It's like either you're diametrically opposed at your very core. Or your best of friends that all think the same thing, and that's kind of the issue with it for sure. Is that no one takes the time to, to realize or understand where somebody might be on the spectrum of, of beliefs. It's just like, okay, you're on this side of things, you're on that side of things, and if you're on the other side, then I'm gonna spit all the vitriol at you I can and just make your and try to ruin your day. No, and in previous, you know, prior to it, you actually to to figure these things out, you actually had to mm-hmm. be in person or have a discussion. Otherwise, mm-hmm. your your point of view was not heard or seen by anybody of any mm-hmm. irrelevance. So it is. But I mean, you know what, buddy? I, I don't want to take up too, too much of your time. And this is a conversation I think you and I can go on for about another 40 minutes. <laughs> so, uh, again, you, you, you play, you got your time under your belt in, uh, in Edmonton. And then uh, when that time expires, you have a chance to sign with the Ottawa Red Box. Kind of a homecoming for you. Where you, uh, you did you did you have other options? Did you kind of choose Ottawa because of the locale? Talk about uh, signing with the Red Box last year. Yeah, I just I always wanted to play here. Um, I was very excited at the time um, to get a chance to play with Trevor Harris okay. and Coach Elizondo. And Coach Elizondo, um, I, I believed in both of them. Um, Trevor obviously signed elsewhere, and then I, I chatted with Dom Davis and all that. And I was, I'm still, I'm completely confident um, in who he is as a quarterback and as a man. Uh, it was just, it was an exciting time to get back. There was offers, there was plenty of offers on the table, uh, but we were pretty, we were pretty sing, single in our focus at that time. Um, and then the numbers, the numbers were right after a couple of back and forth, and, and we made it happen. Nice, cool, cool, cool. Uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to shift gears a bit. If you got a couple more minutes here, I, I always promise. Absolutely, perfect. And, and I really want to touch on uh, a piece you just recently wrote and also talk a little bit more uh, outside of football about your background. Now, can you tell us, just so people that don't know you or don't know your story completely, what's your uh, your, your heritage, your background in terms of growing? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So my dad was born in Jamaica. Okay. Um, born in Jamaica, grew up in South Florida. Um, and my mother was born in Israel. So she's okay. Israeli born with Yemen, Yemen blood, and she was raised in, in Ontario. Okay. Okay. So it's funny. We didn't have a chance to talk about this, but almost uh, similar. My dad was uh, born and raised in Jamaica and my mom mm-hmm. uh, is like uh, French Canadian and her lineage goes back. It's like, so it's kind of, I grew up in it and I'll ask you this question. I mean, you can kind of appreciate mm-hmm. where I'm going with this just because I remember as a kid growing up in Ottawa, um, when was it when you were first? And I mean, again, Canada's demographics has changed. It's, it's, I don't want to, again, I always said that the Canada my dad came to was significantly different than the Canada I grew up in. And, and it was significantly different just in the makeup. I don't, you know, I won't even talk mm-hmm. about mentality stuff with the makeup. But what was that kind of time when you, when you were self-aware? Like, I, I know myself. I know exactly. I remember that, that period of my life when I kind of became self-aware. Okay, you know what? Um, I'm not exactly like all my uh, all my schoolmates or whatever or all my colleagues, 
And I mean, mm-hmm. in their eyes, there's a difference or that's a, a distinguishable difference. You know what I mean? Not, not from our mm-hmm. point of view, but from an outside point of view. Did, did you have that moment when it kind of that awareness hit you? Uh, my dad, especially growing up, I think in, in the South, he, uh, he was, he made it a point to try to keep me fully aware of, you know, how the world would react to me, um, from a young age. But I, I think like the May one, I touched on this, um, a few weeks ago with Tim Baines, the Ottawa son is like, I think when I was eight or nine and had a group of three or four kids call me the N word, uh, on the field actually. Um, yeah, I think I was eight or nine and that was like, that was probably the first moment where I was like, okay, this is, this can go bad quickly. Like people can take this and use it to try to, to try to break your spirit. Um, and that was a little shocking. I think at that age, I didn't know what to do. I thought I wanted to fight them, but I like could, didn't know who was saying it. And there were so many of them. And like, that was a, that was a tough experience for me. So I think around then, but my dad always tried to make it very, very, very clear to me that this is that this is the world we live in and that things are going to happen to me that shouldn't because of, because of the way I look. Um, so I was kind of aware of it my whole life, but that's the first moment of like, yeah, this is, this is real. Now it's funny you bring you bring it up that the first time it happened was actually on a football field. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I know myself now. If you can picture this, this will probably make you chuckle. I grew up uh, I grew up in Canada, and I grew up in Canada okay. period where I mean every single black kid knew the other. Like we're talking, you could count mm-hmm. them on hand. And I was playing hockey, so I mean it just got to be for me. Uh, I, I want to say, and I don't even say this with any bitterness or anything. It's just a matter of of fact is it was mm-hmm. a weekly occurrence that I, I would hear words that I hadn't heard before playing hockey or, and, and you know, sometimes it'd be the N word. Sometimes it'd be descriptive stuff sometimes. And that kind of made me, okay, uh, aware of that. Now what I found, and again, it wasn't drastically different. This is where I kind of want to get your take on it is that when I kind of went out of that hockey world um, and say other sports such as soccer, football, or baseball, it, it seemingly was less prevalent. There seemed to be more. Uh, yeah. You know, so how did you said the first time you heard it was really when you were in the first time you remember was playing football. How do you kind of compare the football culture you grew up in with, say, um, you know, the, the real world Canadian culture? Do you find it's, it's mirrored, better, worse? Mm, I think football culture in this uh, in this uh, light, especially can be better because the people in roles of, of power um are more diverse. I think that's that's just it. Is that like for racism to live and for people to feel comfortable saying horrific things, they need to feel that the people that the the justice that be will not punish them or will is much less likely to punish them. And in football, oftentimes you know you you have captains that are that are black and you have coaches that are black and you have all these sort of things or, or different different backgrounds and stuff. And that in itself lends it not to not to football being absent racism. But people who might feel more confident in the hockey situation, let's use that, keep using that example, because their coaches are white and all the parents of stands are white and all the players are 95% white. They're more comfortable letting any vitriol or letting any of the bad things that they might think, want to say, come out. But in football, you're aware of like, okay, well, yeah, I can say this, but, you know, we have two 300-pound guys in the O-line that are black and two black running backs and four back receivers who might. Who might have an issue with this, and they might they might exact their own justice on me because I will I know I'll deserve it, and that's just it. Like, there's not very many people who have racist thoughts and all those sort of things that think that it's right, or that think that it's like that it's morally right. They just like are so connected to it, they don't want to let go of it. They know that they'll get punished if the right if the right or wrong people in their mind hear it. So in football, you're kind of um, just by committee silenced 
which is a good thing. Whereas in in life, depending on where you are, there's a lot of sub there's a lot of subsections that you wouldn't feel that way. Like I'm sure we could go to just in Ottawa here. I could sprint downtown and run up a couple of those buildings on Laurier and find offices that are 90, 95% white where maybe those words are thrown around, whether it's about black people or people from India or people or Asian people or indigenous people, you know, all those sort of things. It's just about having that the safe space for, for negative thoughts and for bad and for bad thoughts. And football doesn't really allow that. No, one thing I love that you say, and I think that's kind of the transition that people miss or not the transition, but the, 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 again, and I do the quotation thing, the progress and not to get too heavy or deep into this for, for people listening, but I think we're, we're, we may have made the or mistaken in terms of progress we've made is that I think that the huge shift from when I was growing up to now is that, or even, you know, I don't want to make it paint that negative a picture of when I was growing up, say a little bit earlier before I was growing up, was that mm-hmm. it was socially acceptable in the sense that it, it wasn't seen as wrong or it wasn't seen as a negative. Whereas nowadays it's seen as a negative and people that feel this way are ingrained in this way, they know it's a negative versus say 40 years ago where it, it, it truly mm-hmm. wasn't negative. But the difference being is we have it, and this is where you touched upon and what I really liked about the, the piece you wrote is that is, is it's, they know it's a negative, but if they're in their comfort zone, um, and even people that might not go along with this point of view, but just like, you know, passive, uh, passive, uh, what's the word, the term I'm looking for, passively accepting somebody say this and knowing mm-hmm. that, okay, you know what, I don't feel like you do. And I think what you're saying is wrong, but by not calling them out on it, that's the point I think we're at now. And I think that's the big mm-hmm. thing that's kind of got to open up and that's the segue into it. What kind of made you, I mean, just by your thoughts and what you were telling me is very interesting there and very well spoken. Um, what kind of made you now, now you were a communications major. Have you done, you've been writing for a while, I gather. Uh, no, actually, this is a, my first time writing a uh, anything long form. I've always written poetry um, growing up. It's always been my way to stay to stay sane, but I've never written anything more than, you know, a couple hundred, like 120, 200 words. Dude, you got a future, man. <laughs> Again, I, I, I've already got you on our podcast. We've already got a chunk of time out of you, so I don't have to pump your tires. But uh, yeah, so this is sincere, man. This was again. I'm not the only one that feels this way. I mean, it was mm-hmm. really well written, and it was. Uh, and and again, um, like I said, to me, it's twofold because I mean, it's just such a socially aware piece of of, of almost the the transition we have to make from yeah it's great like i mean you look at tv like just standard media in the 70s Mm -hmm. um i remember watching and i tell people this story i say it's funny because i remember watching the the game show network um one time this was a few years back and i'm flipping through channels and it's on and they have this game show on i think it was match game even and it's from yeah and it's from the 70s and the jokes they were making, like the, one of the contestants was a black guy, and, and what they were, the comments they were making, although, yeah, they weren't dropping N-bombs, they weren't being, like, mm-hmm. horribly racist, but they were still stuff that nowadays is unacceptable, and everybody knows it's wrong. So, I mean, we've made that progress, but mm-hmm. then I question, yeah, we made that progress in public, but in private are people. And don't get me wrong, there is people. Like, I've got a, a great story Um that I always equate, and I've told this guy, this is the type that we need more of. It's a, a good buddy of mine, that, and I'll drop his name on the air here because he probably doesn't uh, hasn't heard this story in ages. Brian Henry, and this was when we were in grade um, grade seven, and it was the first time in front of a group off, uh, you know, outside of hockey or something that somebody had like blatantly called me the n word, uh, mm-hmm. and 
I kind of, you know, and, and much like yourself, you're saying, it's like you want to fight him. You don't know if you should. You you feel like, A, like I have to fight him right now. I'm, I'm mm-hmm. just a flood of emotions. And before I could re- react to it, I mean, Brian had grabbed a chair, threw it across the classroom, and was taking <laughs> the line. And, and it was just, and, and you know, I'm not, a, I'm not saying people need to be doing that in everyday stuff, but this was somebody that he, he truly, and I always look, and he's one of my oldest friends, but he didn't see color. And this was just horribly wrong. And I know he mm-hmm. didn't accept it, whether it was, whether I had been there or not. And I mean, I think that's kind of where, what you were alluding to in terms of uh, where we got to get to. Um, yes. Now you touched on this. I mean, obviously I don't have to ask you what the motivation was uh, mm-hmm. to write this, but when you got into it, Nate, um, how, how deep did you find you were kind of like, I don't know if I'm choosing my words right. When you were diving into it, um, did you start off thinking you'd go this deep a dive or did it just kind of keep rolling with you? Yeah. So honestly, like, so it kind of came about, cause I was going a little crazy um, opening social media every day and I've always, I've always found, and I don't, I don't think I'm special in this. I'm sure this is a common occurrence, but I've always taken the sort of the videos of police brutality and stuff um, super personal. Like it's deeply affected me. I remember since like 2014, like I, I, I'd go into week long funks, you know? Um, and so this one was no different. And then it was almost, um, it was almost multiplied by social media, not because like it was good that people were caring and people were like doing stuff. But I just felt that so much of the stuff that was being posted was just missing the mark. And again, not because it was, it was Ill, not because of any ill intent, sorry, but just, it was just like, just missing the mark. Like the issues aren't that people, uh, people don't care. Not The issues aren't that people don't say their names, stuff like that. Like I get the whole like hashtag say, hey, say her name, say his name. Like I'm getting, I get all these things, but it's like, that doesn't matter if people don't actually give a damn. That doesn't matter if people don't dismantle their whiteness. It doesn't matter if, matter if people aren't going to educate themselves and learn to understand. It doesn't matter if people don't actually hate the things that make it happen. Like if you hate that someone died, that's fine. Cool. That's awesome. You should hate that people get murdered. But if you don't hate the systems that allowed their death extrajudicially and everything else that's going to happen because of it, and if you don't hate the fact that this system is just going to continue to perpetuate the exact same results without end until things are abolished or defunded and, and there's a seismic shift in the way that they're created, then there's no point in posting on social media because all you're doing is just clout chasing for how much you care about humanity. And that's great and all like you should care and these, and the dialogues and things that have happened because of it. And because of the start, like all the social media stuff, I think these conversations have been happening more regularly, which is important, but I just felt like I was going insane watching the same things be shared. And like, it's just like, you know, little guidebooks on what you should do if you're this, that, and the third. And like, again, let me like, these are not bad things that are being posted, but it's just like, it was just tunnel vision down and, it was, uh, I can't. it was just locking onto one receiver. I'll make a football reference. It was just staring at your X receiver the whole play instead of opening up your vision and realizing that there's a full offense being played that needs to be taken into account. And like, it just drove me a little insane. So when I started, I just wrote, started, I literally started in a dog park. I was with my dog and I had my laptop and I was like, you know what? I'm just going to start writing. I don't know what I'm going to write, but we're going to start writing. Um, and I was listening to All Right by Kendrick Lamar. So that's always my song that makes me feel a little better. Nice. Um, and I was looking at the album cover and I just, just, just like, I honestly think people are like pimping this movement. Like the Black Lives Matter movement is being pimped. Huh? And then I just started running with it. And the three the three uh, main parts of my thesis kind of just came to me. I was actually talking about caring as a verb like the day before with my girlfriend and things like that. And the rest of them just came as I wrote. And that, that's where we got to. 
Dude, uh, again, I, I promised you we'd keep it to a certain length here, so I, I'm going to kind of close things up with with two questions for you. Mm-hmm. I mean, what does the future hold for, for you, Nate? What are you looking at for 2020 and beyond? Uh, what's your aspirations football-wise, and then what do you think you want to do after football? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I want to – I definitely got more in the tank. I got a – I've got a lot of little egg emojis or egg avatars on on Twitter I have to shut up. I think so. There's, there's still that pettiness inside of me that, that whenever people want to hate on me and I haven't done enough to, to validate my draft draft position in the first round. So I know that I, I got a lot more to do on the football field, but currently I'm working with some working with the school board out in Alberta and hoping to, to bring some of that here to Ontario for putting together um, presentations on race and race and diversity and inclusion and, and talking about some of the themes for my essay. I had a, I met with a class, a grade five, six class out of Calgary um, a week ago, and it was one of the most moving things I've ever been a part of. They were so engaged, 12, 10 and 11 year olds um, asking questions and, and were hanging on every word. So I'm working with uh, working with a, a school board there and hoping to, to spread that so that I can start doing more presentations when next year rolls around, um, whether it's on, in, on Zoom or in person, and then just continuing to write. I'm been fortunate enough to, to get paired up with the team and un, uninterrupted, uh, which is LeBron James Media Company, and now they just nice. recently started Uninterrupted Canada. So, I'm um, working on a couple things with them as well, and hopefully, just getting to create and give this space any platform that I've been given. I'll hopefully, be able to bring in people who've been fighting this fight for longer than me and getting to hear their voices to a, and give them to a bigger, bigger audience. That's what that's what we need right now is the people who have fought this fight for decades to be heard. No, and again, man, like I said, we're going to get that up. But for anybody listening, that uh, to pimp a Nate or to pimp a movement, sorry. <laughs> That's all right. The pimp a movement. And again, I can't stress enough, man. I, I, again, I read it a couple of times, man. Really good stuff, really thought out stuff. And it, it's kind of, and, I, and again, the reason I kind of jumped on board with what you're saying is because it's, I think a lot of people echo your sentiments. I mean, it's great when you see it. And that's where we kind of touched on where, you know, it's replaced reality social media. And it's great. Hashtag this, hashtag that. But at the end of the day, it, it doesn't result in anything. It's just it's reaffirming that we know this is negative. Well, we've known this is negative now for 40 years. We've been in that kind of uh, in that in that kind of zone that hasn't changed. Well, Nate, my only one other question for you, bud. And this is uh, mm-hmm. push my luck here. Hey, can I get you to, to commit to, to coming on one more time at some point in the future? Because there's still a lot I want to talk to you about, man. This was great. Uh, absolutely. I mean, this is this is a one conversation. So I'll be I'll be there whenever you whenever you call. 100 percent. Awesome, Nate. I appreciate it. So, you know what? I'm going to I'm going to kind of jump the gun here and, and tell people this was part one of our conversation. Okay? <laughs> Just because, again, I'm definitely uh, I, I got caught up in the some of the London stuff. And then again, uh, you know, some of the stuff in London, some of your college career. I mean, obviously, two football guys. I like hearing just talking football. But I think we didn't do to, enough justice to the uh, to Pimple Movement article and some of the other stuff you're working on. So I'd love I'd love to in the not too distant future kind of be able to work on that. Uh, sounds great to me. I'm uh, I'm there. Awesome. You just let me know. I'm, I'm down to chat all the time. Awesome. Nate, really appreciate your time today, buddy. Thanks for joining us. And again, peeps out there, check it out uh, to pimp a movement. Nate, thanks for joining us today, man. Thanks for having me, Wayne. Hey, no problem. And good luck in the future. We'll talk soon.